Welcome to episode 3 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where I watch movies I already own but have never seen because the listeners tell me to. Voting on titles for Make Me Watch It takes place at Bureau42.com. Follow the right-hand side links to get to the voting. This month's topic is Inception, written and directed by Chris Nolan and originally released on July 16, 2010. It currently sits at number 14 on the Internet Movie Database Top 250 Movies list. The score is 8.8 out of 10 when you're viewing that page, 8.7 out of 10 right now when you view the top 250, because the Bayesian statistics depend on the average score for films on that specific report, and they're treated as two different reports. The top 250 is just those 250, the rest is based on the entire IMDb. Up to this point, Christopher Nolan has released nine feature films that he's directed. The first was Following. The second, Memento, is on the IMDb top 250 at number 48. Then came Insomnia. Now Batman Begins is on the top 250 at number 115. The Prestige is number 50. The Dark Knight is number 4. The Dark Knight Rises is number 64. This film came out between those two. And his latest work, Interstellar, is number 32. So seven films out of the nine films he's directed have made the IMDb's top 250. His next film, Dunkirk, has fairly high expectations based on that kind of track record. Nolan was also nominated as a writer for this and for Memento. He was also nominated as a producer for this film because, spoiler, it was nominated for Best Picture. A very basic version of the plot is that Dom Cobb is a man who makes a living stealing ideas from people's minds through their dreams. And this time, he's actually been hired to implant an idea instead, which is what they call Inception. His own psychological traumas are a fairly major obstacle, as his mind implants dangers in these dream worlds that are specific to him. Now, I bought this movie based on its great reputation and Nolan's track record. I just never got around to setting aside two and a half hours to watch it based solely on that. Once I decide to see a movie, I do try to avoid all other information about it. I do regret waiting so long and generally want to thank the voters for giving me that extra push forward. Part of my reluctance may have been Leonardo DiCaprio. This is only the fourth DiCaprio project I've seen. The first was Growing Pains, where he was brought in as the cute kid to try and save ratings, but adding a cute kid didn't boost creativity in the writer staff. The second was Titanic, which I think is overrated in virtually every respect. And the third is Catch Me If You Can, which is good, but not good enough to wipe the taste of Titanic out of my mouth. Thankfully, this one was. So I'm going to give kudos right here to John Papsidera, casting director for this film. He's won a few Primetime Emmys and the Casting Society of America Awards over the years. Now, when we get into the cast, as I mentioned, this has Leonardo DiCaprio as Dom. Note that Dom starts with a D. He's best known for Wolf of Wall Street, Departed, and The Revenant. He won an Oscar for The Revenant and was nominated for Wolf of Wall Street, Blood Diamond, The Aviator, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. The next cast member I'm going to list, and these are not in sequence of importance in the film, is Cillian Murphy. He plays Robert Fisher. Note that Robert starts with an R. He's also known as the Scarecrow in No One's Batman trilogy, Jim in 28 Days Later, and so forth. Tom Hardy plays Eames, which starts with an E. He's known for Mad Max Fury Road as Mac Rokitansky, for Dark Knight Rises as Bane, and for The Revenant as John Fitzgerald. Like Gary Oldman in the 90s, he's somewhat of a chameleon, and a lot of people don't necessarily recognize him in his different roles. He was nominated for an Oscar for The Revenant. Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars as Arthur, which begins with an A. 
He's also known for his works in Looper and Dark Knight Rises and 500 Days of Summer. He's recently played the title character in Snowden, which I need to add to the official voting list for this podcast series. Though I enjoyed him in Looper and Dark Knight Rises, I still associate him primarily with Third Rock from the Sun, which was good in the context of what goals it set out for itself and 1990s sitcoms, and also for his role as the eventual Cobra Commander from G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra. And seeing his later work, it's clear that my issues with that are not so much casting as it felt at the time knowing him only from Third Rock, but a lot of it was from scripting. But we'll get into that, possibly, at some other point, likely when I cover the sequel in this podcast. So, Marion Cotillard plays Mal, who is a character whose name starts with an M. She also went on to work with Nolan in Dark Knight Rises. She was also in Le Vian Rose and Rust and Bone. She's got a mix of French and North American films. She was Oscar-nominated for Du Jour ou Nuit, or Two Days, One Night, and she won for La Môme, which was brought to North America as Le Vian Rose. Ken Watanabe plays Sato, which starts with an S. He's also known for The Last Samurai, for being the other Raizal ghoul from Batman Begins, Letters from Iwo Jima, and so forth. He even had an Oscar nomination for The Last Samurai. Tom Berenger plays Peter Browning. Peter starts with a P. He's also known for Platoon, Training Day, and Major League, and had an Oscar nomination for Platoon. You might notice there's a bit of a theme with the Oscar nominations showing up here. Ellen Page plays Ariadne. That's a name that starts with an A. It's also from a Greek myth where she helped people escape the labyrinth and the Minotaur, and it's essentially her role here as well. She's also known for Juno, for playing Shadow Cat in the later X-Men films, notably Days of Future Past, and for her rather terrifying role in Hard Candy. She was nominated for an Oscar for Juno, and deservedly so, but lost to Marine Cotillard for La Vie en Rose. Now, Delib Rao plays Yusuf, a name that starts with an A. He's also known for his work in Aviator, Drag Me to Hell, and Biba Boys. I singled out those few in order, because if you spell out the first initials of those character names, you get Dreams Pay, which is essentially what's going on in this movie. We have thieves who are stealing things from Dreams. Also in the cast are Pete Postal Thwaite as Maurice Fisher. I will forever associate him with Unusual Suspects, but he was also in Lost World Jurassic Park 2 and Romeo and Juliet, and won an Oscar for his role in In the Name of the Father. Michael Caine is in this, and his most popular internet movie database titles are all Christopher Nolan-directed films, the Batman trilogy, this, the prestige. His career goes on far longer than that. His first Oscar nomination was for Alfie. He was also nominated for Sleuth, nominated for Educating Rita, one for Hannah and Her Sisters, one for The Cider House Rules, and was nominated for The Quiet American. Lucas Haas is in here as Nash. He was also in The Revenant, Brick, and Witness, but I'll always associate him with Mars Attacks. Getting into the crew, we've got Hans Zimmer as the man who composed the score for this film. He received an Oscar nomination for this score for Interstellar, for the Sherlock Holmes film with Robert Downey Jr., for Gladiator, Prince of Egypt, The Thin Red Line, As Good As It Gets, Preacher's Wife, and Rain Man, and he won the Oscar for The Lion King. The cinematography was by Wally Pfister, who is consistently brought in by Nolan for his projects, but that's not all he works on. He quite deservedly won the Oscar for this. Each layer of dreams, because as we said, they're going into people's dreams and they can dream within the dream and drive them down further into deeper layers. Each layer has its own color palette. So there's immediate subconscious indications of which dream layer we're looking at. With one exception, Dom's home is in the same palette 
as the first dream that we see, which contributes to some ambiguity in the film. I don't want to go into more detail than that. He was also Oscar-nominated for his cinematography in The Dark Knight, Prestige, and Batman Begins. So clearly collaborating with Chris Nolan has been good for him. This was edited by Lee Smith, who often works with Nolan. He's also known for The Truman Show and has a lot of other credits. He was nominated for editing in The Dark Knight and Master and Commander. It blows my mind that he was not nominated for editing in this film. The editing and structure is incredible. I only found out after the fact reading the IMDb trivia that this movie, which uses a particular song that ran 2 minutes and 28 seconds in its original cut, was deliberately timed to be 2 hours and 28 minutes in the final cut as an homage to that song. How that is not an easy thing to do without making the movie feel long or padded or somehow out of place to hit a specific runtime that long to the minute. But they did it and they did it well. As I said, I had no idea that was it going in and I was noticing that I thought the editing was just excellent all the way through. The production designer was Guy Hendricks Dias. He's also known for his work in Steve Jobs, Elizabeth the Golden Age, and Passengers. This and Passengers were the two films he got Oscar nominations for. Now, the sound editor is Richard King. He won for this, Dark Knight, and Master and Commander, and was nominated for the Spielberg War of the Worlds and for Interstellar. And this is a well-deserved win. The use of surround sound alone in the first few minutes to pull you into this world and just hear little incidental sounds behind you to make you feel like you're in the room where this film starts is a huge part in making you buy into this rather fictional and fantastic world that they've built. And again, it's subtle, it's subconscious, like the shifting color palettes. It pulls you in and you you think, at least, you know where you are and why you're there until things start to get thrown out of whack for you. So overall, this film was nominated for eight Oscars and won four of them. So the wins were for cinematography, sound editing. It won for sound mixing, with work by Laura Hirschberg, Gary Rizzo, and Ed Novick, and also won for visual effects. It was nominated for art direction, score, screenplay, and best picture. It lost Best Picture to The King's Speech, which I haven't seen yet, but that had better be one heck of a film. I will see it. We'll get into that a little bit later. Now, I don't want to go into more details on this movie. Normally, I would want to discuss the themes and the images, and there's a lot in here, but this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I am going to be coming back to it. I highly recommend that you do too. So I'm just going to leave it at that, because the less you know about the content, the better it is. You really don't want to come in with preconceived notions about what it's about or what they're aiming for. This is a movie where you just want to experience it when you're ready to sit down and think analytically about what movie it is that you're watching. So I'm going to leave out other trivia and other spoilers. If you've already seen it, here's your excuse to go watch it again. If not, go now. Just trust me like I should have trusted all the people telling me for years I should have seen this. This is a great movie. The one thing I will still discuss specifically about it that we always go through is the budget. This had an estimated budget of 160 million US. The total domestic gross was $292,576,195. So that's almost double the budget. The general rule of thumb that a movie has to be somewhere between two and three times its budget in terms of domestic gross to make money tells me that this probably made money eventually in the States from domestic numbers only, but it would have been through home video sales to push it over that line. It clearly was profitable before that because the total international gross, the, I guess the total worldwide, including the domestic, was $825,532,764. 
So that's about five times the budget. So it's pretty safe to say that, yeah, this film made money. So it is very enjoyable. Now, I did promise recently that I was going to update and add another addendum to the voting list. It's going to take a little bit longer than I anticipated, partly because I've added a few films and taken some away because some of the titles that were on there were part of my ex's collection and not my own, but also because I've decided to do a film counting down the 100 Best Picture winners from the first 99 years of the Oscars, because the first year had two categories that eventually merged to become Best Picture. That's going to start in late 2019, so that a monthly podcast will go through each year of winners and finish just a few days in the neighborhood of the 100th Academy Awards ceremonies. So I've got to go through and not just remove the titles that were out because they were part of my ex, but also remove those movies that won Best Picture so that they can be discussed in their own podcast. But if you haven't voted yet, I still encourage you to go do so. You can do that again, as I said, at Bureau42.com. On the right-hand side, there is a link to go through for the voting. And if you keep an eye on that, you may catch the next addendum before it's officially announced within the podcast. So feedback for this and any other Bureau 42 shows that you listen to can be emailed to Bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, or you can post reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you'd use. It does help the shows get noticed, and I do watch for those reviews for feedback as well. And finally, thank you for listening.